Now, unfreedom sounds like an odd thing to say, but it's about what is taken away from her, what she's restricted from doing, what she cannot do for herself. Welcome to today's podcast episode. I have Brendan joining me for the intro of this one because he's here today helping me with podcast episodes. And I just said to him, do you want to be part of this intro? And he said, what one is it for? And I said, it's for Laura, the guest that I was like incredibly nervous about. And had it not been for you, Brent, I don't think I would have even reached out to her because it was like the start of the year when I was discussing what I wanted to do with the podcast and you were like, I think you need to like level up and go for guests that do make you nervous. Yeah. And this. You need to yeah, get out of your, that, that comfort zone of, yeah. And I knew how much you listen to her and how inspiring she is. And I'm like, do it. There are so many times I've started conversations with you by saying, so I was listening to the Crime Analyst podcast today And then I'll prattle off all of these different things I had learned or just like food for thought when it comes to coercive control and domestic violence, femicide, all of those sorts of things because... They interest you. Massively. Huge. You're a big, um, yeah, stuff like that really means a lot to you. And I've noticed that over the time that we have been together is... So I knew someone like that would be really good for you just to have a chat with, like... And that's what I said, just don't treat it like a podcast, just treat it like a chat and you nailed it. I was so incredibly nervous though because I, like, despite the fact I love podcasting, I've been doing it for years, I've spoken at events, all of those sorts of things, I still have this story about myself that I tell myself and I fall into this cycle of thinking and feeling that I'm not intelligent enough or worthy enough of the time of a guest of this caliber And yeah, as I said, if it wasn't for you saying like, do it, what's the worst that can happen? I would not have even reached out to Laura or Laura's team, but I have been quietly like consuming all of her content for ages now. And I am, I'm in awe of her because I think the work that she's doing is so incredibly life-changing to so many people and so powerful. Like Laura is out there making real reform, real change when it comes to coercive control laws. And I don't know a woman out there who hasn't experienced some degree of coercive control or suffered at the hands of a misogynist in one way or another. Yeah. And I mean, you've witnessed it as well, like growing up with your mum too. Oh, a lot. Like, yeah, there was a a really big uh, incident. So I can definitely understand that and where you're coming from and how some women would feel with some men. Yeah. And this is like a conversation you and I have all the time all about. The time. <laughs> the like, yeah, we do. We sit down and we have big chats and it's not like, oh, let's sit and talk about feminism, but no, it's just, it's like a constant through facts. line because I really want to raise boys that, that respect women. Yeah. And that understand their experience of the world is not the same experience that a female is having. No. 
And we talk about that. And I think bringing awareness to the fact that, you know, when a woman walks down the street, she's thinking a million different things about her safety versus a man who more often than not a straight man anyway, is walking down the street feeling very secure. Yeah. Just like a day-to-day sort of walk down the street. Like it probably wouldn't even come into his mind of someone coming up behind him. Yeah. And it's a really interesting thing. Well, I found it to be an interesting thing to only realise the impact that that has on you. Like, it's not been till my mid-30s that I'm like, oh my gosh, like my whole life, you're so aware of your vulnerabilities and it's a really scary thing when a man uses their size and their strength to intimidate you, overpower you. You and I have had countless conversations and I mention it briefly in my episode today with Laura where I say like, I've been in that situation where someone has said to me, take your shoes off, where someone has parked me and taken my car keys Stood in your way. It's blocked you off. Awful. And spoke to you like you were nothing. Like yeah, and that's you know on the lighter end of the scale of things that happen to women all over the world. And Laura speaks a lot about that progression of you know these little things that you might overlook and go oh like did it happen? Did it not happen? Was it my fault? and how it can progress over time. You know, Laura always says in her podcast, which I'll talk about in a moment, you know, she always says, like, violence and femicide doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like, it happens. It happens in real life. It's happening to people that you know. And I just love that whilst her genre is true crime, it's really from an educational standpoint. It's not from a glamorizing like let's focus on the notoriety of killers and people that have, you know, done awful things. Laura really focuses on the victims and also on education. Yeah, the nitty gritties of what needs to be said and done. Yeah, in particular, um, she's got a series on the Gabby Petito case and there's like 14 episodes on it. It's like it's a real deep dive, but Laura talks you through like the video footage from the police officers and points out all of the moments that misogyny, like are really like misogynistic things are happening and the way that the bro culture informs the decision of the police officer. You know, like I'll let you as listeners, if you're interested, go and listen to the Gabby Petito series in particular. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Gabby Petito Uh, was murdered by her boyfriend. But before that happened, there was a domestic call out and police attended, but they treated her as the main aggressor. You know, she she was put in the back of the police car and it was very much the, um, you know, hysterical female trope. And so Laura talks you through all of these different things that the average person would miss, you know. And so I think one of the reasons I idolise Laura so much is she really makes information accessible and... Understood. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a huge fan, obviously. I'm glad you did it. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to say it's my best ever podcast because I was so nervous 
And you know when you're in a conversation and you're nervous because you're like, oh, yeah. shit, I don't want to shit the bed on this one. <laughs> but, yeah, to think how much you got you got out of it. Yeah, and I'm probably being hard on myself because I tend to do that. But we covered a lot of things. We talk about domestic violence. So if that is triggering for you, please do practice listener discretion. Look after yourself. We have resources in the show notes. We do touch a little bit on sexual violence. Um Femicide, like there's a lot in this conversation and a lot of it is centered around coercive control. Laura is a big player in the coercive control space in terms of actually criminalizing it. And I'm just so grateful that we have a definition and we have um, a way to help people ex- like understand what's happening to them. More awareness as well. Yeah. So a bit of a bio for Laura. After a decade of analysing violent crime at New Scotland Yard, Laura became the violence advisor to the National Police Chiefs Council. Trained by world leaders at the Behavioural Analysis Unit, National Centre for the Analysis of Violent Crime at the FBI and New Scotland Yard, Laura has applied her psychology degree to analyse violent crime from a behavioural and preventative perspective. Laura has been the architect of law reform to better protect victims on eight occasions, as well as giving evidence in Connecticut, USA and Queensland, Australia, both leading to successful outcomes regarding coercive control law reform. That's the very short bio. I showed Brendan before her actual bio, like pages and pages and pages Went on forever. Of qualifications and things that she has done. So massive. So I actually came across Laura at first through a podcast called Real Crime Profile, which is with her and Jim Clemente and Lisa Zambetti as they profile behavior from real crime cases. And then from that podcast, I jumped across to Laura's own podcast, which is titled Crime Analyst. And I'll make sure we have the links directly to that podcast in our show notes as well, because I really think, like, I think a lot of you will really, really love hearing from Laura and you'll feel smarter for it. I feel smarter for it. Deep hole, isn't it? Yes. Catches you. Yeah. The moment she's doing the, um, the murder murders, there's like a Netflix special on it at the moment. She's doing a deep dive into it and it's just... Just picks everything apart. Yeah, and it's amazing. And the stuff that was missed and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did, does a good job. Really highlights all of the holes in investigations and it just makes you feel more intelligent. And I'm hoping that this conversation today will help women out there to understand coercive control, to see the red flags and to get out in a safe way. So without further waffling from me, I'll let you guys enjoy this episode with Laura Richards. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Laura, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to have this chat with me. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you and I've been really nervous because you're someone I really admire. Oh, that's so very sweet. Thank you very much. Well, for me, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So thank you for inviting me on. I actually said in a recent podcast, I've got a guest coming up and I'm so nervous because of that saying, you should never meet your heroes. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) Well, I literally have just had to deal with my teething little toddler. You know, there's another side to Laura as well as doing all the crime side and um, all my analytical work and changing laws and so forth. But I'm also a new mummy. So, you know, getting used to motherhood, etc. And I know you've got twin boys and I'm in awe of anyone who has children, I have to say. And you've got them to, they're now 10 years old and my little guy is just 19 months. So I admire you greatly for that. Well, thank you. The work that you do, Laura, is incredibly important and life-changing. How is it that this came to be for you? What led you into this line of work? Well, there's a very long story or a very short story, and I'll, I'll just give you the short story in that I've always had a very strong sense of you know, standing up for people and if there's injustice. And probably from when I was younger of reading far too many Nancy Drew type books and the Hardy Boys and, you know, that gives you a a, a time of popular culture in in the zeitgeist. And, um, you know, I watched a lot of law-related programs as well as I started to get older and various things happened in my family and with friends' families. Two of my friends were sexually abused with someone, by somebody who was sort of the local handyman and a series of things happened. And at that stage, I decided I wanted to go into law, but I was always interested in the psychology side. So I decided to study psychology first of all and then you started to see the advent of Silence of the Lambs and these kinds of movies coming out and the behavioral profiling side seemed to be a very good fit for law advocacy and also for the behavioral profiling, being curious about people. And I managed to get a secondment. It was really sort of an internship, I guess you'd call it, at New Scotland Yard. And I was finishing off my psychology degree and had this year out that I managed to get this internship there. And I literally fought tooth and nail to be there, to be the first person in, the last person out, read everything, worked in their sexual offenses section in their intelligence branch and just felt like the work was a calling for me. Um, And really the rest of it in terms of you know, how my career has been shaped. I've just really followed the things that have been interesting to me. And that's always been about giving people a voice and helping them empower themselves, um, challenging wrongdoing and the curiosity side of puzzles, you know, understanding, well, what doesn't work to then think, well, how do we problem solve that and how do we fix it? And it just so happened that through my first five years at New Scotland Yard, Pretty much every case when I was working in their sexual offences section, 
So on rape, murder and abduction cases, pretty much every case um, where I was working on a murder or a serial killer case, it was women being harmed and killed by men. And really, that was an organic process in that I realized that these were patterns and they were patterns, the macro patterns were the things that people weren't picking up on. And so I started to ask difficult questions about that, of why we didn't look at domestic violence, why we didn't um, count how many women were being killed by their partners and how many children were. So one thing has led to another, really, realizing that there wasn't a statutory review process to review murders when women were killed by their partners. And I kept asking why. And if there's a gap, well, why don't we create something? And so really it's been organic of, you know, now nine law changes. Um, so that's the sort of the shorter version of asking questions, being curious about people and setting my sights on the behavioral profiling aspects. And then inadvertently, due to, due to my sex and due to the cases that were happening, I realized that there was this pattern um, which related to women and people weren't even calling it male violence. And even now people tend to call it, you know, women's safety issues or violence against women as if it just happens to women or we just do it to our, ourselves. So I'm still uh, asking a lot of questions about language and behavior and why why one thing happens rather than another. Yeah, there's a very clear through line in all of the podcast episodes I've listened to where it is about why is someone the way they are? Why is that happening? There's so much curiosity and, you know, I've heard you say so many times that there are so many things that are just angry making and you take that anger and you propel yourself forward into making change and asking questions and I think that's why you're so admirable. I'm, as I said, I'm just such a fan of the work that you do because it can't be easy. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for acknowledging that because it's not easy when you're a lone voice. And now I don't feel I'm a lone voice because there are lots of people like yourself and others, and certainly my listeners on Crime Analyst who write to me and say that I've ignited something in them. But when you're in the heart of New Scotland Yard and you're asking these questions, I mean, there are some people who support that, but there's a lot of people who don't. Who don't, yeah. And given that it's a, it was a very heavily male-dominated environment, particularly where the detectives worked, it wasn't an easy culture. And it hasn't been easy. Law changes aren't easy. Challenging the status quo isn't easy. But I really believe in what I'm doing. And I, I do think if you've got that passion then yes, you might get knocked down a few times and you dust yourself off and you get back up again. And I've always had that resilience. Um, and I've always known what's the right thing. And that's not always easy either of what's the right thing. What's the right thing for you or what's the right thing to move the needle forward for the better good. And at times, sometimes you and your needs and the better good, it can conflict and you have to take those decisions. So it's not easy. These aren't, it's not an easy path to tread, but there are some incredible women who are blazing the trail as well. Now we have some fantastic feminists in Australia with Jess Hill. And I mean, there'd be far too many to name. And if I name a few, there'll be a load others that I haven't named. But yes, I think it's really important to stand up and use your voice. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, you mentioned psychology, and obviously so much of what you do is centered around the psychology of victims, perpetrators, law enforcement, etc. But I'm curious to know, Laura, in your opinion, why is it that the general public are so fascinated and so taken with the genre of true crime? Yes, it's an interesting question uh, that I've been asked a few times, and I really believe that at the heart of it is mainly it's women who are very interested in the subject, you know, of true crime podcasts and the books and the documentaries. And that's what I've seen at various conferences and, and so forth. And I think that women are interested because we know it happens to us. Yeah. And therefore there's a curiosity and we want to get upstream of it and we want to figure things out. And it's a kind of a problem solving curiosity. Um, so I, I think it is interesting, the people who are wanting to devour true crime, you know, whether it's podcasts or docu-series, and maybe they don't even realize that that's what's probably at the heart of it at a subconscious level. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a few years ago, had I answered that question myself, I would have said, oh, it's morbid curiosity, you know, like when you're driving on the highway and you see a car accident and you can't help but look over. But as I've gotten a little bit older and as I've, you know, explored the topic a little bit more, I do think that's what it is, right? Because as a woman in the world, we grow up knowing we are in danger so often, you know, walking to our cars late at night, going on a date, just existing in the world where so much more vulnerable than a male generally is. And so it's almost like, okay, we understand that's a possibility. It happens to a lot of us. So how do we get our heads around it? How do we understand it? How do we kind of face our fears? Yes, and I, I really think it's ingrained in us at a very young age. You know, probably most women don't remember the time when they were first told, you know, don't walk down that street or don't walk down that alleyway. Just be careful when you go out, put your hand over your drink or... Hold your keys you know, out. Hold your keys in your hand or call me when you get home. This constant reminder that's done in good faith, but it's a constant reminder that there is an omni-threat. Now, and when we think about what that, what that omni-threat is... It's almost always men. We're not fearful of a woman walking down a street behind us. We, we watch and we check the men. And if we're not doing that, you should be doing that. Because unfortunately, the statistics tell us that we are at risk as well. So it's something that people should really think about. In when did that first come into their life? When were they first aware of it? Or don't wear the skirt, it's too short, or that's too revealing. Or, you know, these things that are said to girls that are not said to boys. And I think about this a lot because of my little guy and how I want to socialize him. And the messages have to be to him too, because we tell girls about risk and danger, but we don't talk to our sons. And I'm not talking about risk or danger. I'm talking about their behavior and how they make or may make girls or women feel. And I think that's really important when they walk down the street, that they understand if a girl or a woman is in front of them, that they may have anxiety because of male footsteps behind them. So cross the road, alleviate that moment. So I think it's the social, socialization for both. And, you know, people talk about keeping girls and women safe. Well, the only way you do that is to check boys and men's behavior. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in having conversations with my partner who is around the same age as me, mid-30s, it really, until we were having these conversations, it had really never been brought to his attention that him walking down the street and a female walking down the street are having two wildly different experiences. We're clocking everything and we're trying to be as responsible as possible and making sure we're not doing anything, quote unquote, whereas a man is just walking down the street. Yeah. I mean, I have those conversations all the time. You know, my partner's six foot five. He never has to be worried about going, not that he goes out for a run in the the middle of the night, but he might go to the gym at 4am. You know, and as I said to him, I would never go out for my run at 4am when it's still dark. Yeah. He said, well, I've never thought about that. So it it closes down how you move around the world as as a female. But for a man, the world is opened up. They don't have to have that cognitive load or that burden either thinking about it. Yes. And earlier you mentioned Jess Hill. I've actually had Jess on the podcast before a few years ago, and she's a ray of light. Jess focuses so much on coercive control. And I think that coercive control as a sentiment gets used a lot now, but I don't know if it's really very clearly understood by a lot of people. Would you mind explaining some of the nuances of coercive control? Yes. And, you know, having spearheaded the campaign in England and Wales, and it it became a criminal offence in 2015. And I have been working in Australia too on criminalising coercive control and here in America. But what I will say is that the term has used a lot in England and Wales, but I train a lot of professionals who are experienced and they realize they didn't understand it at all. So I think there is this disconnect and certainly in Australia where it will be criminalized in in different states and I hope it will become a a federal law. But I think the nuance is missed a, a lot of the time when thinking about what does coercive control mean and what does it look like? Because in every case, it looks quite different. But I'll give you a few words that are helpful to help to help locate what coercive control is. And for me, it's about unfreedom. Now, unfreedom sounds like an odd thing to say, but it's about what is taken away from her, what she's restricted from doing, what she cannot do for herself. And the what is taken away is really her agency and her autonomy and her ability to choose, and her self-esteem that gets gradually eroded. And I say gradual because this isn't something that happens immediately. It really is oftentimes quite soft and nuanced, and it can come in the form of even caring, pseudo-caring behavior, as I call it, of, you know, wanting to drive someone everywhere and saying, well, I'll take you from A to B, which means that you don't have freedom to just go somewhere without that person knowing, but it can look like a nice positive thing, right? Lots lots of communication, a lot of text messaging, that sort of thing. Yeah, checking in constantly or asking, when you go and see your friend, take a photo, show me where you are so that I can see that you're okay and that you're with your friend. So I'm caring for you. I just want to make sure that you're okay. Now, these sort of rules and regulations that come in they don't apply to the person who wants them to come in. And so there's a double standard when they come in too, but there's a fear of consequence. So where she might be happy to take that picture, 
in future times, if her phone's not charged, she might become very anxious when she can't take that picture to show where she is. And so her friends might see her now starting to get almost anxious and paranoid about her phone battery dying when it's no big deal to anybody else. But to her, she has to do this check-in. Now, that check-in comes over time, as I said, and normally it's dressed up as something that's caring. So the behaviours aren't always easy to understand. And it's almost like the invisible man. You know, there's the movie and there's the recent remake that the invisible man that's omnipresent, that's there creating this physical sense of you have to do A, B and C and you're living your life because of somebody else's physical or maybe they're not even there at the time, but their presence is felt. They're omnipresent and they're omnipotent. They're there all the time and somebody starts living their life to that person. But like I said, it's invisible to other people. And oftentimes we see isolation with coercive control. And again, it might be dressed up as something else of, well, let's move and have a fresh start. Or that person's not good enough for you or that person doesn't treat you well, like that kind of insidious chipping away and eroding relationships. Yeah, and your support network, which is important. So if you move away for this fresh start, you lose your social network that's around you, maybe your job, but maybe, you know, it's for the better good for the relationship to have this fresh start. But the isolation is normally present in most cases. You know, with pregnancy, we see um, vulnerability and dependency occur. But if someone's looking to exploit that, so coercive control is about exploiting the vulnerable and not just exploiting, but entrapping and dominating. And it's about entitlement that one feels that their needs are the main need in the relationship and that she, and I'm predominantly talking about her being the victim and him being the perpetrator, because it does tend to be the most dangerous cases are in heterosexual relationships where we see the escalation to murder Um, And I think it's important that we do talk about that because of the power imbalance. So that's the other key plank um, that's central to the offence is a power imbalance. And that power imbalance, again, is invisible. And it could be within an age difference that she was 16 and he was 22 when they met. That's a big gap, right? And so who holds the power is the question I always ask in any relationship, maybe I'm assessing it, or maybe somebody's been murdered, and I'm looking to understand the relationship, who held the power, and it could be in age, it could be in vulnerability, it could be in pregnancy, it could be in grief. So there's lots of different, when I talk about vulnerability, it can mean lots of different things, but really at the heart of coercive control is this power imbalance. I've heard a lot of victim survivors describe it as though incrementally they found themselves going from being slightly anxious to feeling like they were walking on eggshells all of the time to all of a sudden realizing they were, you know, spinning plates behind the scenes to try and protect themselves from situations that hadn't even happened yet. You know, they'd always just be on high alert, always in a sense of fight, flight or freeze, trying to predict what could happen next. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way 
an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yes, well, of course, with the um, when we think about what happens when you're under threat, the, the other aspect, there's fight, there's the flight, there's the freeze, but there's also the fawn. And I don't like that description, fawn. I call it collaborate or cooperate. And women are much more likely to do that. When we're under threat, we're much more likely to be collaborative with somebody because we realize that physically we cannot. It's survival. Yeah. So that's where you often see someone say, oh, well, she must have liked it because X, she did Y, when normally it's about collaboration because we understand the risk, we understand the threat. And it could just be a look, right? He shoots us a look or we're wearing, you know, a strappy top and he taps the arm to signal cover up that to everybody else, it means nothing. But to her, she understands the signal and that threat is there. It could be around finances, you know, that she has to work two jobs or that she's not allowed to work. And that's why it can be so many different things. You can never say it's always X. You know, it's very idiosyncratic to that victim, to that woman and to that man. And that perpetrator, the coercive controller, will create an idiosyncratic, tailor-made way of disempowering her over time of the things that he loved about her will be the things that she saw as her strengths that he starts to attack and undo. So she then starts to wonder, you know, those were the strengths and now they're being undone. And it's a form of gaslighting and wrong footing that she now becomes unsure of because she trusted his opinion. And she trusted it so much and held it in such high regard that if he's saying that, and so it's a it's a way of rocking someone's world. Um, you know, it really is like likened to um, hostage taking, where she is slowly undone. And that's why I sort of I say that it's like an unfreedom or a taking away, a taking from that person. Mm-hmm. I've heard it described as it's the sort of abuse that is from the inside out. Whereas your domestic abuse is from the outside, you know, people can see it more clearly. It's that physical, you know, actually physically being harmed. When it comes to physical domestic violence, is there always an element of coercive control? Yes, it's a good question because a lot of people don't understand that actually not in all cases would there be coercive control. Um you know, what separates the two is really this entrapment and domination, the undoing of, you know, the psychological reduction of a person looking to utterly dominate them. Whereas with domestic abuse, you can have someone who is very unpleasant as a person. They can say horrible things that are really upsetting and those things can be emotionally and psychologically harmful 
but the person isn't looking to reduce and dominate and entrap. They're just a very nasty, unpleasant person. So there is a distinction. Um, The coercive controller is looking for utter domination. They will reduce. They want absolute power over. And there is that entitlement that their needs should be taken care of. What they're doing is absolutely okay. And you have to sit it in the patriarchy because the patriarchal society is about power over. And that's why the system backs up the coercive controller, because the power over is what gets rewarded. And that's why it's very problematic, actually, because the coercive controller just moves things a notch, just a notch. So it might look normal to quite a lot of other people, right, about male-female relationships, but they just move it up a notch, but in every sphere of life, and they micro-regulate and really micromanage the victim in every aspect. But frame that against, well, when she marries, um, his, what, what's announced is man and wife, right? She just becomes the wife, that the vows are taken to love, honor, and obey, that in Western tra- tradition, you are given away to the man by we the- We take the, their name. Yes, we take their name in in theory. So we lose our identity and we become their possession, their entitlement, their right. So a lot of this is bound up in tradition and culture and it's just moved along a notch. And that's why it's a challenge for people to see it and understand it for what it is. If someone is listening and they're nodding along going, I know how this feels because I'm in this at the moment, does it continue to keep going up a notch, Laura? Like, is it more common than not that it continues to get worse? Or for some people, is that just the dynamic? That's just the container of that relationship? Yes, I can't talk in absolutes and I, I won't talk in absolutes. But but what I will say is, you know, there are some boys and men who may not be aware of their behavior. And it might just be that that's what they've always been doing. And that's what works for them. And therefore, if somebody explains it to them of how it's making them feel, they may respond in a positive way. They might genuinely have no idea because male entitlement is rife, right? When people say it's a man's world, that's not a joke or a cliche. It genuinely is. That's why a woman gets rubbed out when she gets married. She becomes a missus, miss, missus. You know, our worth is attached to the man, right? Our value is attached to the man. And there's a lot more I could say about that, but I'm going to keep it shorter in a nutshell. Um, So in some cases, it might be that he genuinely doesn't realize the effect of his behavior and he may want to change. In others, he might see it as an absolute um, challenge to his authority and how dare she talk to him like that or respond like that. So if you have someone like that, he's not going to respond well because he will see it as an absolute um, flout of his authority, his rules, his way. Um, It ends his way and on his terms when he says so. And that will be his mindset. And in those cases, it's quite dangerous. And what I would say is, yes, the notch does tend to increase and that's why separation or any form of discussion, you know, regarding separation is a high risk factor. So every case has to be assessed on its own merit. But the man who does not 
do well with rejection, who wants revenge if something doesn't go his way, who wants to harm, who wants to damage, who feels like he has to utterly control. And it often comes from a place of insecurity deep inside, but that's not a sympathy factor. That's a risk factor. And you have to speak to somebody who really understands coercive control to start to think about an exit plan and a safety plan for you and for your children if you have them. So yes, I'm putting it in that context because these cases can escalate to what I call murder in slow motion over time. And that's unfortunately where we see the femicides happening and the familicides, the the Hannah Clark type cases where she's leaving, she has the children, there's a whole history of coercive control and he's stalking her and things are getting worse. She knows she's at risk but other people don't really understand the danger that she's in. But for a man like Rowan Baxter, this challenge to his authority and the way that he says things, there's no way he's going to let her go on her terms. And these are the most dangerous of cases. Mm, That ownership. And I know in that case as well, and in so many cases, the woman is still empathetic towards the male partner and still trying to explain things away. Oh, they had a hard upbringing. Oh, they don't mean to be this way. And because we are socialized to be the caretaker and the nurturer, there are so many layers in which it's hard to untangle what our actual air quote duty is. Yes. The dutiful wife. It's an interesting um, phrase, isn't it? And when I work with girls and women, I always talk about our needs of what we need and what we desire and what we want. And at some stage that gets eroded and replaced with his. And when we have children, it happens and we end up, we might end up in a situation where we end up doing the domestic chores ourselves because it's quicker, it's easier, right? So before long, we're saddled with doing the domestic chores, running the household, running the social situation, running the children. Also, we're working we're doing five times the amount of things that he's doing, right? And this happens every day. It's not just a certain generation. There's, I have friends now stepping into this and younger friends where I have to keep saying, dial it back. Don't take on X or Y. Don't do A, B, and C. Discuss how you're going to make it work as a partnership. And why do you put his needs above your own? Why are your needs right at the bottom of the pile, and why do you feel you have to be so empathetic? You swall- you're swallowed up by the things that happened to him. But what about what happened to you? So, you know, and I do think that there is a, a, a sex bias there because girls are schooled and groomed to be caring, compassionate, polite, kind. And you're compliant. only compliant, malleable, right? She's a good girl if she is complicit and if she says nothing. But she's difficult if, and this happens in the workplace too, if she speaks out. So now magnified in a relationship, you know, that that's a problem where we attend to empathy. So the sympathy version for the man, and we want to do everything and caretake for them, but we're not caretaking for ourselves. And when he's abusing us, oh, it's just because he was abused as a child. Oh, it's because his first partner cheated on him. All these excuses and empathy start to come in. And that is, it's almost in our DNA, I would say, to look for, but it's X or Y and we can fix 
and we can help and we would do that to the detriment of our own needs and it's that that where we all have to do the work on ourselves to dial that back and i'm not saying don't be don't be empathetic at any point because we should be we should all be male and female but we also have to look at our own levels of needs and desires and wants and look after ourselves too and i guess because we do sometimes feel culpable we feel responsible that we have in a way kind of disappeared ourselves we've minimized ourselves ignored our needs so then because we feel responsible for that like oh i didn't speak up i didn't take ownership for what i needed then it almost feels like oh there's more of a level of us being compliant or complicit in creating this circumstance which again then just makes it harder to untangle Yes, well, this is the spider's web. And that's why I talk about coercive control being a spider's web, because there are so many threads to it that are invisible that keep her entrapped. It's not just one thing. And that's why the question, why doesn't she just leave, is such a ridiculous question. It's so layered in this invisible spider's web. And the other thing I didn't say was safety. You know, it's not just our wants, desires and needs, it's our safety that we even put our safety on the line because we don't want to be rude or upset that person. You know, and again, safety is such an important aspect. And so a lot of times it's, you know, when I work with clients, it's about getting back to them. And that oftentimes women can't even hear their own, themselves, their own gut instinct, because that's been eroded. And yes, they might feel complicit that this was something that they created because they gave up, you know, going to an after work drinks thing or a friend's gathering, or they became isolated themselves, or this was of their doing. But actually, you know, when you look at it, is it of your doing? Because if you have someone who's trying to shrink your world, that's never going to be in your interest, right? And I, when you talk about what's coercive control and what's a healthy relationship, the healthy relationship is you want to be with someone who opens your world up, right? Who expands your horizons and your uh, everything about your life, who wants to lift you to your full potential. But when you've got someone who's trying to close your world down, and it might be because they say, I just want to be with you all the time. I just love you so much. That's suffocating and that's smothering. That's not somebody who has your best interests at heart. So the warning signs, you know, can be flipped into positive things, but actually they are the warning signs of entrapment. And we are so good. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I have been in a situation where I realized that I had been, I had become so proficient at presenting to the world how good everything was because it was like I had to make it look that way. I had to present it that way because if I didn't, I would nearly fall apart. And, you know, I've been in situations before, Laura, where I've had partners say to me, take your shoes off, give me your keys, parked me in in the driveway. So even just hearing you describe these things, I'm like, yes, that is the language that we need. These are the definitions that we need to be aware of. And it is, it's such a web. It's not as simple as someone treats you poorly, you exit, because there are so many layers from socialization to our identity to safety to, to all of the things, you know, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, but it's so helpful to have the language to describe it. And that's a really good point. And why I push so hard to change the law, because giving it a name, 
and being able to describe gaslighting, love bombing, the charm offensive, um, you know, withholding, being able to talk about what love bombing is, all these things that now are in our um, lexicon, which weren't before, right? And it's within the law in England and Wales as well. And creating posters. I remember a case that was in the UK of a mother and daughter, Charlotte and Claire, who were murdered by the the father and husband. Um, and the two boys, Luke and Ryan, survived. They weren't in the house at the time he decided to kill both Claire and Charlotte. Now, the untangling of what happened, because there was never physical violence prior to that, the two boys were sat in a police station just days after I had been successful in changing the law. And there was a poster, a coercive control poster in the police station. And they looked up at it and they realized all the words were how they had been living. And the coercive control, they said, that's what we've been experiencing at home. And I'll, I'll give you a quote that I, I always have to hand because it really does paint the picture of why language is so important, why dis- calling it coercive control, giving it a framework and a law. They they said he'd never been explicitly violent towards us, but he had turned our home into a financial, psychological and emotional prison. And these, you know, both Luke and Ryan were shut down, emotionally repressed, lived their life by not angering him, not upsetting him by his rules that he brought in. And the same with Charlotte. So a lot of the rules are completely invisible to other people. And of course, the question, well, did he hit you? Or was there, are there any bruises? We miss 99% of what's going on if we just ask that question. Yeah, because from the outside looking in, it's very easy for people to go, he's a great provider. He's a great dad. He's this, he's that. But yeah, it's the invisible stuff that you don't see, that invisible prison. When it comes to safety and understanding that misogyny is such a big part of coercive control and also domestic violence, Laura, when we witness misogyny, whether that's in the wild, perhaps we're out and about and we overhear a man being disrespectful to a female partner, or perhaps someone is using their size to intimidate us in the workplace or a social environment, how do we, or do we, like, do we safely call that out? How do we handle that? Well, it's a difficult question to ask because, and, and to answer. And I, I'll say why it's difficult to answer is that, again, every situation is so nuanced that what might be appropriate in one situation might be very dangerous in another. And I strongly believe that our gut instinct tells us what's right in those moments. And I would always say to follow what your gut is telling you about whether you make the challenge there or if you're in the workplace, do you make the challenge later? And it's with your boss, for example, and other co-workers, because it might be too risky to do it with somebody who is, and I'm not going to use the word volatile, but who is aggressive and may use violence. So every case, I would always say to people to to trust your instinct. You know, I've called out misogyny many times. Um, it doesn't always land well, but other times it's that people haven't even really considered the impact of certain phrases, you know, language being used and how that lands 
for girls and women when certain phrases are used that are offensive to women. Um, so, you know, I think it, it it depends on the the level of what's being done and said. You know, if someone's using their physical presence um, to create fear. You know, that is not appropriate in the workplace, but it might be that you don't feel you can challenge it then and there. But, you know, my view is that we have to call it out. You know, I think of Gabby Petito, who sat in the back of the police vehicle, right? And three male police officers spend 80% of their time talking to Brian. You know, that sends a message to Gabby about who they value and who's important. So when I train police officers, what's that? Who they're listening to. Who they listen to, their physical time being spent. There was a female officer there who spent most of her time with Gabby. Well, those male officers didn't even know the female officer's name. They didn't ask her and they never asked her what Gabby had said. That's misogyny in action on multiple levels right there, that those male officers went away thinking they'd done a great job. She didn't. Melissa didn't. She gave an interview to say, that she didn't, and she was shut down thereafter. But the point is, even that level of misogyny in the workplace, where three male officers don't even talk properly with the female colleague, that's misogyny in action. Was she aware of that? I don't believe she was. But that's what happens to women every day. So that oftentimes, it's so every day that we don't even see it for what it truly is, right? Yeah, the bro culture, as you describe it, particularly through the Gabby Petito series. It is the bro culture. It's the old, you know, Mandy Matney calls it on the Murdoch Murders podcast, the old boys um, network. But this is just patriarchy. This is just everyone has to play by the rules of the dominant culture and the dominant culture is male, right? That's the problem. And that's what we're trying to challenge and change every day in little ways and sometimes in bigger ways. And with power and control being such a uh, root of coercive control and domestic violence, there's obviously a through line, right, from power and control from the perpetrator to someone who seeks a position of power and control, such as police officers and people in positions of authority. Absolutely. And that's why the the coercive controller is just a notch up because the power and control dynamic is at play all the time. You know, in the Gabby Petito case, Officer Pratt has an allegation of domestic violence against him. Do I think that played into his decision making? If that's substantiated, and I have no reason to believe that that victim wasn't telling the truth. And by watching his actions and his behavior, I can see it's a problem. I can see there's a power and control issue that he has. And I could see how quick he was to dismiss Gabby and how open he was to believe Brian. So, you know, even in Utah's 101 of domestic violence in their manual, there's a line in there, the more alike the police officer and suspect are, Right, the more likely the police officer is to believe the the suspect, the more alike they are. Well, they're alike on sex, but you put the two of them together, their faces are like two peas in a pod. But the point is you gravitate to what you know and who you know. So, yes, I think that coercive controllers and perpetrators gravitate to law enforcement. I've been in the trenches. I've seen it with my own eyes 
I've been subject to somebody, a number of police officers using power and control tactics on me. It's not just that I've read this stuff in books, it's I've lived it and seen it live and in action. And so when I see it on the police body-worn camera footage, when I'm analysing cases, I know it for what it is. And so too did Gabby, really. She understood, she might not have the words that I'm describing, but she understood that she was shut off in the back of a police car and she understood that she was the problem and she was upset and they were laughing outside. Framed as a hysterical woman, crazy, out of control, upset. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's interesting that standing up and challenging this where you can be called a feminist for it, but it's not women plotting this stuff and saying these nasty things about male victims or suspects, right? It's not the reverse. And so when you hear three officers kind of, oh, women are crazy, eye rolling of, oh, well, my ex, you know, had to get her medicated and she's kind of okay now. And if you reversed it and flipped the script of women talking about men like that, well, there would be an absolute outcry. It would be totally unacceptable. So I was fine with this stuff. If you flip the script and see how it lands, you realize how far we've got to go, that women tolerate far too much and put up with far too much. And where we are on that line of, you know, how many battles do we want in one day? Because it it is just this constant drip, drip, drip of sexism and misogyny that we deal with every day. And it seems to me like so much of misogyny is a willingness to have these blinders on to go, you know what, if it hasn't happened to me, it's not valid. Yeah, so you might think your experience is a positive one. Okay, that was me at New Scotland Yard. You know, I didn't know the meetings that took place before we sat in the meeting. You know, that's because they all played golf together or did something together. They're in, you know, the old boys club. I didn't realize that that happened. And so young Laura would say to you, it wasn't a problem because you don't know that your male colleague is being paid more than you. You don't know that he's being invited to all these other social things and you're not. You only know your own experience. But as you get older, you start to see it more for what it is. And yes, there are some who think, well, I've got a seat at the table. I'm just going to enjoy my seat at the table and not rock the boat. But the problem is that we're not letting other women in and up. And therefore, you know, in leadership positions, in boardrooms, you're not seeing, you know, in in every aspect of life, you're not seeing women in decision-making positions. And until that happens, where you see equal or more women, equal to or greater than, I believe that things won't change. Well, you're definitely out there making the world of difference. I know that you have a YouTube channel. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes, the YouTube channel is a new thing. I mean, when I started podcasting, people used to love to, you know, listen to people talk. Now we've kind of gone back to people wanting to watch you. So yeah, it's gone full circle. <laughs> we've gone full circle. You know, it tends to happen, doesn't it, in life? But yes, please do subscribe to the Crime Analyst YouTube channel. I have the podcast as well. And most oftentimes the content is different. I deconstruct different cases and, um, you know, of course, on the YouTube, you get to see me. Um, but at the moment, I'm doing a very complicated and complex case where I'm actually talking about the same case on both platforms. But 
please do check out the podcast and the YouTube channel. Absolutely. I will make sure we have the links for the YouTube channel and of course for your podcast in our show notes. And yeah, I just co-signed that the podcast is such a brilliant resource. You've taught me so much. Now when I hear things, see things, I'm really looking. I'm looking for the nuances and I'm clocking little things that I would never have before. And I think if we are consuming true crime, consume it in a way that's educational and a way that is all about the victim and yeah, learning. It's yeah, it's just really wonderful what you're doing. So thank you so much for the work you're doing and for your time today. Thank you. And I just want to say that makes my heart and soul so happy because, you know, in a very crowded and saturated space, there are a lot of podcasts and there's a lot of shows that focus on the serial killer. And we know their names, we know their faces. What most people can't say is the names of the victims. And that's where I started with Crime Analyst at the beginning of my career with a very high profile case of a serial killer. Everyone knew, knew his name, everyone knew his moniker, everyone knew what he looked like. But when I first started talking about it, not one person could name a victim. And there were many victims of his. And I really want to write that and correct that narrative. And survivors, you know, reframing things for victims and survivors and making them feel that they can tell their story and that there isn't the victim blame and shame attached to them. It's actually the shame and the blame should be on the perpetrator And we shouldn't be coming up with these monikers that make them bigger as a perpetrator. They should be made to feel much smaller and inadequate and irrelevant, actually, in the story. So I do kind of get fed up with all these different podcasts that really do sort of glorify the perpetrators. And I am trying to change that and also educate you know, people, women specifically, so that as you describe, when you see this nuance or you see this what you didn't realize was a red flag, but now you see it as a red flag and you ask more questions about it and you're curious about it and you trust your own instinct because majority of women have a very good gut instinct about things. They have good intuition, right? And we do have more brain cells in our stomachs than dogs have in their heads and we should feel empowered by that. So I'm really pleased to hear that. And crime analyst, of course, I go into really nuanced detail about each case and will always center the the victims in their own narratives. Yeah, the Forgotten Victim series in particular, and of course, the Gabby Petito series has really changed the way I think and feel about so many different things. And I love how you encourage us as listeners to listen in to a police recording or a press release and then probe us on what we think and what we heard and what we missed. It really is so educational and so profoundly impactful. So again, Laura, thank you. Wonderful to hear. And that's what I want people to understand where my opinion comes from and what they might have seen before and then what they might now see differently. Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation.
In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.